Well, it's a delight once again, <coughs> once I get my voice into tune, um, to come and deliver God's word tonight. Martin was indeed correct um, by saying or pointing out the connection between uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12 because there is an inseparable connection there. There's an, an organic oneness between the the uh, the two chapters and we often ask the question what is the wherefore therefore and it is there that in the light of chapter 11 chapter 12 tells us these are the practical outworkings in the light of these heroes and heroines of faith um, with their great and wonderful examples practical examples um, this is how we should now live this is how we should act this is how we should go on now as I mentioned this afternoon um, the, I've been studying this year personally along with others in different parts of the country the second London Confession of Faith of 1677 and of course when I was preparing the message I saw how um, as, as we saw this afternoon with the, the faith of the Old Testament believers, how it is inseparably um, similar to ours in many ways. Um, so it is tonight, uh, the, uh, I will lean heavily upon it so that we can get the defined words of um, succinct reasoning of godly men as they hammered out these truths in the, the mid-17th century and came up with a document which we can have today not as a historical fossil but as a, a living help for us. It in no way replaces the scriptures and in no way does it supersede the scriptures but is an aid to us, a help to us, um, in a brief paragraph giving the, the information on a particular subject. And you will see that as we go through it tonight. Again, I'm going to um, follow the, the, the procedure of this afternoon by reading most of it so that um, you don't have to turn to the text. I have the text in my uh, paper here and I will bring them out at the time fully and if not I'll just give the reference that you can see later I said between the introduction and the conclusion this afternoon um, there is one less tonight and I hear the assembly of this afternoon saying Amen introduction here's the introduction The chastening of children by parents is not a subject today which is one which is popular for discussion um, and because of that we see the evidences in society of the failure of that. Contemporary society is revealing as we were discussing at the, the meal table an hour or so ago, there is a degeneration, generation after generation, um, because we see the Bible teachings being laid aside in favour of enlightened secular teaching. Chastening, whether it be public or private, I've seen chastening being performed in a supermarket, not the best chastening I've seen, and I don't think even the most biblical. Um, whether it's verbal chastisement or physical chastisement, or whether it is the threat of loss of privilege. You know what I mean, if you do this, 
then this will inevitably be withheld from you. Or this new one that we see nowadays. One, two, three. Giving the child the opportunity to test the parent's pleasure or displeasure to a limit. Well, I've seen that going further than three. Um, and we have today the threat of governmental um, intervention in our own parliament in Scotland. Um, there is a bill going through uh, to try and deal with this subject um, to outlaw it so that eventually through judicial interference there could be the problem that godly parents, not just moral parents or, or good parents or caring or loving parents, but godly parents um, could be criminalised for such actions. Frankly, we live in strange times um, and it's a turning away from God's word. Well, let us first of all look tonight at an overview of the passage in Hebrews. We're going to concentrate more on verses 5 through 11 this evening because our subject is God's dealings with his saints and it very clearly comes out this evening in the fact that it's the chastening of the Lord that comes out in verses 5 through 11. Verses 1 through 4 are the, the connection link between chapter 11 and, and chapter 12, verse 5. Um, it's, it's an introduction to the subject of chastisement. Um, and as I said, the, the wherefore in verse 1 um, looks backward and also is looking forward. It's saying, remember what we've just looked at, and in the light of that, this is what the implications are. And that's um, where we're going. Um, verses 16 through 17 are an example there, I believe, of the lack of chastisement. Because, as you will see there, Esau was not a son, or not a sheep, not, not a friend, not a servant, not, not one of God's people. And so in that sense he was not chastised. And we see there, um, because he was not a son, um, he, he um, gave his birthright for a, a paltry son. Well, let's, looking at, let's look now at the setting of chastisement. And, and I've got five small sections here based around words. So the first um, is the setting of chastisement. And the setting of this chastisement in these verses is in a family. It's a family setting. It's, um, according to verse 8, it's a family. And it's for a son or daughter, also verse 8, or if you like the corporate word children, found in verse 5. It's by a father. And the whole tone of it is, according to verse 9, caring, or verse 6, loving. And at the end, the purpose The reason for this is a gracious reason, according to verse 15. So that's the setting of chastisement. It's within a, a domestic family setting, within a limited setting. It's not God's dealing with all of mankind. 
It's not the creator with all creatures. It's a limited setting. It's the family, a father and his children. Now let's look at the words related to the severity of, chasti of chastisement. Um, three words are used here. In verse 5, the word chastening, the word rebuking also in verse 5, and the word scourging in verse 6. None of these words here are life-threatening. None of these are severe to the nth degree. There is, there are limitations here. Divinely imposed limitations. The Father has imposed these limitations. There is a chastening, but it's not a condemning. There is a rebuking, but there is not a revoking, a scourging, but not a death. And then we find there is a solace of this chastisement. What is the what is the the the, um, the effects that this should produce? And we find in verse uh, ten. It is profitable. And I think that's what we've got to, to, to think of. It, it is profitable. This chastening is profitable. And more importantly, in verse 10, it produces holiness. Now, that of all things, I believe, is what God is doing within us. He is not, he hasn't saved us to make us better people. He hasn't saved us for um, great exploits. He has saved us to produce holiness within us. To produce a, 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 a divine and heavenly character upon you now which is fitting for the eternal world. That's what is to be produced now. And if anything of all the providences in life, whether they be good or adverse, and all the things that we experience, all the difficulties, trials, tragedies, illnesses we come to in life the greatest thing in the mind of God is your holiness it's your holiness that's what it is that can't be emphasised enough also in verse 11 chastisement produces righteousness or righteous living by his people and also in this category, it produces fruit or should produce fruit. Because once a person has experienced the chastisement, it should bring greater self-love towards the Lord. Greater um, um, love towards the one who has inflicted the chastisement. And in that case, we will say, well, we want to be fruitful people. It's a matter that we want to serve the Lord, not through fear, but through love. So we love what the Father has done for us. And the last thought in this section here is, what are the supreme results of chastisement? Well, um, it's found in that uh, uh, verse 17, the last verse of our section, in blessings and inheritance, which Esau because of him giving up his birthright, lost out on the blessings and the inheritance. So, that is a little overview of chapter 1. Now we're going to look at the blessings of adoption. 
In the, the second London Confession of Faith, there is a, a small section on adoption. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard many messages on adoption. In fact, I don't think there are many books on adoption. Maybe tonight, maybe someone would take up the, the mantle and, and write a, a book on adoption. Because it is a, a, a truly neglected subject. And yet, when we see it, it's a wonderful subject. There's so many wonderful aspects to it. Let me just give you one or two of them. I'll not give you all um, 12. There are 12, um, the 12 aspects of adoption that our framers brought out. Um, um, well, we saw them this afternoon. Liberties and privileges. Um, we have the Father's name. That's a wonderful blessing of adoption. Um, we receive the Spirit. We saw that also this afternoon. Um, we are pitied. We are protected. So there are 12 great privileges of adoption. And one of them is to be chastised by the Father. And the proof text that they have is our text, Hebrews 12, in verse 6, let's read the word. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he scourges every son whom he receives. Notice that. That's why I emphasized it the second time, although it's not in the text. That this chastisement is not by another. Another who has no care. Could we imagine having a child, a child that we love <coughs> and requires chastisement for one reason or another. And we said, well, you know, I, I just can't be bothered. I'll give it to my neighbour. And we know that the neighbour is a man who's a drunkard or, or having drugs um, and, and he has a, a moral life. And we say, right, I'd like you to come and chastise my child. Well, there would be no love there. <laughs> there, would be, uh, there would be the infliction of terrible pains uh, over and above what chastisement really means. No, in that verse, Hebrews 12 verse 6, it's the Father who does the chastisement. And that's how it should always be. And in fact, it should often be like that. In the domestic situation. And that the father should not defer to the mother. Because that would be um, giving away his duty and his responsibility. I remember uh, one message that I heard and some of you know uh, John Piper, and I've, I've listened to his messages, and, and he felt that that was one of the things that he missed out on in his life, because his father was a very well-known evangelist, um, and was away from home, not just for day, uh, days on end, but weeks on end, sometimes months on end, and so the chastisement of, of, of him and his uh, siblings were done by the mother. And in later years, he, he brought this out in a message, saying that, um, yes, it was chastisement, but it, it should have been from the, 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 the paternal father rather than the mother. Um, so that's a lesson to us. It, it, it's a father's duty and a father's responsibility. But it's one of the great blessings of adoption. And, and I think that in, in, in a family where some child has been brought in and taken into the family, um, it, it should be one of those things that, okay, the scriptures tell us no chastising, chastisement is good at the present, at the time. But later on it bears fruit. And I think this is something that a, a, a child who has been fostered will say that I was brought into a family, 
I was given all the privileges of, uh, of children born into that family and um, yes I was chastised with the other. Chastisement should not be left out even though the child wasn't actually born into that family. So that's one of the blessings. Thirdly, let's look at chastening in scripture. You know, the scripture doesn't have a lot on the subject at all. Um, it, it does mention it. Um, the, the word is only mentioned um, 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 in four passages in scripture. And, um, but the, 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 the sentiment is discussed in other places there. But it's found in four books. The first one is the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 17, and I quote, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. I'm sure you know that scripture. Quite a well-known truth. Um, so th this is a truth that has been preserved for us from ancient times. I believe the book of Job is probably one of the most ancient books in the world certainly contemporary with the time of, of Abraham. Um, now this was quoted here by Eliphaz, uh, one of Job's so-called friends, and it, it, it's, it's one of those things you have to watch when you're in the book of Job, because Eliphaz has the truth, and he's spoken the truth, and, 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 um, and the angels could say amen to this. However, it was incorrectly applied to Job. Um, Eliphaz himself didn't know that at the time, um, as did Job, um, but Job knew that he hadn't sinned and he was not therefore a candidate for correction. And uh, Eliphaz didn't know um, the mind and the will of God in this matter. Um, however, he brings out the truth but just incorrectly applies it. It's also mentioned in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 3, verse 11, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. So we can see that in the book of Proverbs, which is a book which is very good for using, um, for teaching children. In fact, many of the American Christian schools um, use the book of Proverbs as their basis for teaching and they, they, they bring together all the, the different topics and themes together and that's how they teach us and of course they would practice this also. Um, a third uh, book of the scriptures is Isaiah 26 verse 16 Lord in trouble have they visited thee they poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them and so again, uh, it's brought out in the, um, uh, the book of Isaiah, and it's brought out there, um, not in a, an individual manner here, but in a corporate manner, to be used corporately also. The Lord um, dealing with the, the nation, um, because the economy in the Old Testament, slightly different from the New, the, the, was dealing, God was dealing with a nation, and so there was, there was um, um, corporate chastening also. And then, in our own passage, um, in uh, Hebrews 12, um, uh, 5 through 11, um, um, we find the, the definitive explanation. So, um, what I would say, that if, um, just to get your minds thinking there, some of the men might like their, their theology and systematic theology. If, you, if you're studying systematic theology, you go to the clearest passage, and in this case, that would be Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, and that you would use as your basis, and the other you would use for the, the corroborating your, um, your understanding of this subject. So that, that's what you would do. So that's chastening in Scripture. So it's not an isolated subject in the New Testament. It's not the isolated subject in one book, but it is in the Scripture. And we find many examples of chastening in other parts of the scripture. It's not mentioned, uh, the word is not mentioned concerning David, but that's certainly what happened with David. Um, certainly from the time of Bathsheba and onwards, certainly there, there seemed to be one act of chastising after 
another for David. That's just one example. Now, the, what is the fourthly? What is the purpose of chastening? Well, first of all, it's the divine response of God through adverse providential circumstances or spiritual afflictions, both inward and outward, or either or. Um, but it's first of all, as we mentioned earlier, building upon the family theme, it's for believers only. So it's for the family of faith. It's from God to a believer. It's from a father to a child. It's from love to disobedience. We have to look at it in those terms. So in our context, the exhortation is given in the light of the examples of chapter 11. Now you will notice that when we come into chapter 12 there, the connecting four verses there are important. Verse 1, you are to run the race set before you. You are to look unto the end of that race, Jesus. You are to endure the conflict, verse 2, living the pilgrim life. You are to reject the shame which is heaped upon you and you are to finish the race in glory as our Lord Jesus Christ did. Now, that gets us on to thinking now. The implications here is that the writer of the Hebrews was writing to Hebrew Christians. So that's, that's, the, that's the core group that um, uh, um, are the object or the aim of this book. And it would give the impression, by implication in verse 1, they were not laying aside that weight in the light of those great examples in chapter 11. They were not being Enoch-like, Abel-like, Abraham-like, Daniel-like, David-like, Moses-like. And they were not laying aside their besetting sins. I forget who it was, but um, one writer has said that we should, we should mark our sins, but especially our besetting sins, the ones which constantly creep up, unaware, when least expected, mark them and in our own way through prayer and faith we should seek to prevent that in our lives it seems that these Hebrew Christians were failing to run the race they were according to verse 13 out of the way you know, when, it, when you're on a race track, there is only one way round. Um, you, you don't see those racers saying, right, we're going all around the track four times, but if I can cut across the grass in the middle and, and, and gain an advantage, that would be good. Yeah, well, it would be good. You, you would get the advantage, but that, that would be cheating. It would be wrong. So when you, you run the race, you don't go out of the way, you have to keep in the way. It seems by implication they were not looking unto Jesus. They were possibly like the disciples in the ship. Instead of looking at the master coming to them, and, and Peter, when, he, when he's out there in the water, he's looking more at the boisterous sea, the, the, the terrible storm, um, the comfort of the ship. He, he, he doesn't see the Lord. And he begins to sink. These Hebrew Christians, I think, have fallen into that kind of mindset at this time. They, they were not enduring, uh, according to verses 2 and 3. They were not um, despising when they should be. They, they were failing to strive. They were, they were forgetting the exhortation. Um, and so that is 
where they find themselves in. It is not like the temporal and ultimate judgments upon the unbelieving. It's not like that. Verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. My son, it mentions in verse 5, it's for those whom the Lord loves, for those whom he received, he deals with us for our profit. It is for our restoration, for our peace, for our fruitfulness. And in verse 13, it's also a type of healing. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So we get the impression there that chastisement is a type of healing also. So in that case, chastisement, if it's a type of healing, then first of all, it has a number of implications. What we have done to cause the chastisement has caused pain. Pain to the triune God. And that, when realized by ourselves, should cause pain for us. Self-pain. Not just the the chastisement but self-pain and so when chastisement has been administered and there has been um, a, a change in our life we will see that later then there is a type of healing also and it's for both temporal blessings according to verse 11 and eternal blessings according to verse 17 now I've said a lot there, but what I want to do now is to go back and develop these themes now. So our fifth section is temptation and remaining sin. And I suppose I have in the back of my mind here Romans chapter 7. Because it depends which side of the, the coin you do. You follow on for Romans chapter 7. I fall upon the, the, um, the side where I believe it is the believer um, under, um, and under temptation. The saints may, through temptation of Satan and the world, and because their remaining tendencies prevail over them, and through their neglect of the means which God has provided to keep them fall into grievous sins. That's what the Second London Confession says. What are some of these grievous sins then? Because this, if once, once we get to the nub of this, we will find why chastisement has, has to be administered. Well, the Confession says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation in various ways shaken, diminished, or suspended. Now think about that for a moment. Think about our own life. Think about past experiences. So firstly, this may be because of their negligence in persevering in it. Now the framers here give you an unusual reference. But the more I meditated upon it, I think they got it right. Their the reference is the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. And let me just read verse 6. It, it, it's about the, the beloved, uh, the beloved um, has gone away in seeking. Um, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself. And was gone. My soul failed when he spoke. Spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The framers saw this as a negligence 
on the part of the bride to persevere and when we look at that in the light of Hebrews 12 1 through 4 of running the race and persevering in the race and looking unto the Lord Jesus and looking unto the glory we can see this as a great connection here not persevering so that is one area of grievous sin a second area is by their falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves God the Holy Spirit and we've already mentioned it this afternoon um, Psalm 51 and David verses 8 through 14 but let me just read the, the one verse cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me and of course we know the sin one of the um, delights I've had this year but I didn't plan it at the beginning of the year I always take um, um, books of scripture and study uh, uh, take it for a study every year my books this year have been of first and second kings and one of the delights that I've found as I've gone through it is finding when some of these psalms were written and uh, it's been a great blessing to, to find that at this period and the superscriptions on some of the, the psalms of David how they fit together and I've now uh, I'm a Bible marker I write marks in the Bible and, and so along beside those portions and kings I have got those psalms now so that when I come to that passage in future times, I will, will stop at that passage there in Kings and look to the Psalms. And, and that will be a complimentary blessing for me. Um, so, um, a third um, um, grievous sin is by some sudden or forceful temptation. For example... Psalm 116 verse 11 the psalmist says I said in my haste all men are liars sometimes we can um, give an ejaculation from our mouth something like this that um, is um, inappropriate a wrong ill thought out um, unhelpful and in a sense a sin um, another one Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favourable no more? In his mercy, is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Psalm 77, verses 7 and 8. And then a final one in Psalm 31, 22. For I said in my haste, I am cut off thine eyes. Uh, I am cut off thine eyes nevertheless thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee so we can see there that these uh, cries from these psalms and psalmists um, of sudden and forceful um, temptations coming to them and if they've succumbed to those temptations then um, chastisement may be the inevitable result uh, the framers also have a fourth section here um, by God withdrawing the light of his countenance and causing even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light Psalm 30 verse 7 and I quote Lord by thy favour thou hast made my mountain to stand strong thou didst hide thy face and I was troubled these are only four examples I'm sure there are many other examples in scriptures and there are many others that are not in scripture which can be classified as grievous sins um, which in the whole scheme of things um, of indwelling sin um, because 
Although we are redeemed, we are not redeemed perfect beings. We are redeemed imperfect beings. So, if that's the case, we've got another wherefore. What happens next? And that's section 6, God's displeasure. They may continue in that state for some time. For example, in Matthew 26, Peter's denials. Now, Peter remained in that for a period of time. But you know, it wasn't a long period of time. I have a problem, and maybe some of you can help me with this one. But I, I find a problem um, that, that a person could be under chastisement for a long period of time. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a teachable person. I'm open to light and understanding. Um, but I, I tend to think that when God chastises someone, it's a short-term measure for a relatively quick return. And I'll explain the return when we get to that section. Um, no doubt Peter did deny and Peter's oaths also to emphasise the denial. But it was only days, only days later. And the Lord restored him. So, let's look at the Lord's displeasures then. Um, because when we sin and yield to temptation, it displeases the Lord and grieves God the Holy Spirit. There are two passages, one I'm not going to read in Isaiah 64, verses 5 through 9, but the one I will read in Ephesians 4.30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Yeah, what an implication that passage has. Grieving one who has sealed you to the day of redemption. Just think of it. It's, 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 it's quite a, an earth-shattering scripture that, that we would do such a thing. But that's what we do because we are weak in these mortal bodies. Not fully yielding ourselves as we should yield. A second thing is we can suffer the impairment of the graces and comforts of the Lord. Remember David again, Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. David, he feels all those losses that he has experienced. He, he, he feels, I, I've got a, a, a wrong spirit within me. Um, I have um, not the close presence of the Lord. I don't have the joy of salvation anymore. All the things that he's saying. Thirdly, they have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. I quote When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. See what's happening here? Through the displeasure of the Lord, there is, there is an, an, an absence, there is a drought, there is a, a coldness, there is a, a feeling of alienation, being far away, not enjoying those blessings. The next one's quite a sobering one, because it doesn't just affect you. It's how you 
might affect others. Because you might hurt and offend others and therefore that will bring temporal judgments upon those to be chastened. In 2 Samuel 12, 14, speaking of David again, Howbeit, because by the, this deed thou hast given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So we, we've got a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, 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 and in some ways also to the unbeliever. Because if they see something in us that's not attractive of Christ, because we should be a, a, a reflection of the love of Christ, of, we should make Christ attractive, loving, desirable. If by doing things like this, then we hurt other people, but especially those of the household of faith. So give me a moment to think where we're going next. So because of this, um, we fall under God's fatherly displeasure. In Psalm 89, verses 31 through 33, If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer the fruitful to fail. I like that one there in the verse 33. Um, when, when you study a book of scripture, I'm chasing a rabbit now, but I know that when I chase rabbits, when I chase rabbits, and I'm chasing a rabbit just now, but when you study a book of scripture, you should always try to find out the purpose of that book. What was the purpose? Because everything in the book will ultimately relate to the purpose of that book. What do you do when you come to the Psalms? Well, there is a word that um, comes up a lot, and it's the only word that I will give. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, and it's the word loving kindness. So that word loving kindness, you could say, is the purpose of the book of Psalms. So I can't remember now, I've got it written down there, but it's, it's found many times in the book of Psalms, and, um, and it could well be the, 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 the text word of the Psalms. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him. Isn't that a mercy? This isn't chastisement, because he's mentioned the rod earlier, he's, he's mentioned stripes earlier, um, nor suffer the faithful to fail. So even in chastisement, that's why I say it's in the context of a family, it's loving, it's caring. Right, section 7. What about during the time of chastisement? Have we thought of that before? I must admit, I hadn't. I hadn't think, thought of that or the implications. And that's why studying the, the, the Second London Confession of Faith this year has um, given me all sorts of new outlooks and understandings, and um, especially when you read Scripture, just for reading Scripture, then these things will come back to your minds. What about during the time of chastisement? What is God's view of us then? Well, Matthew 6, verse 12, the disciples' prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I believe God continues to forgive us. The justified during the time of chastisement. We've brought the chastisement upon ourselves 
and the chastisement may be of such a nature that it may take a certain period of time to fully follow its flow. But during that time, even during God's displeasure, he will forgive our sins. That's emphasized again in 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I may stop here for a moment to say that these are not my proof texts. These are the proof texts of the framers of the Second London Confession of Faith. And they have thought about this very carefully. And so I can only say, I can only be thankful to them. And, and I think we should all be thankful for the, the great thought that has gone into this. Also, it says they can never fall away from the state of justification. And of course you all know the next text I'm going to bring up, John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now remember we're speaking here of God's view of the believer and God's and the believer's experience during the time of chastisement. A third one. Despite all this, they shall in time renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Luke 22. But I have prayed for you, Peter, or for thee, Peter, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, or restored, strengthen thy brethren. This was after Peter um, had denied the Lord three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. I'll tie all this together in just a moment. Another experience during this time is whatever the cause or the duration of the impairment of assurance, believers are never left without the sense of God's essential spiritual identity. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Well, I think we've had enough there. Um, but we can see in this passage here the, the, the experience of the believer during the time of chastisement and the view of God towards that individual during that time. Now, we've seen chastisement, God's displeasure, the divine view, the human experience during chastisement, the restoration is section 8. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of God's countenance restored to them until. And this is what I found in a number of passages. For example, in Kings. Wicked Ahab. He humbled himself. He put on sackcloth, <coughs> threw ashes upon him, lay upon the ground. And because of his humbling, because the Lord says to the prophet, do you see how he humbles himself? He humbled himself. Yet that humbling was not a repentance. Restoration does include humility. But it goes further than that. It's the confession of the sin which produced the chastisement.
There has to be that. And, you, and I found this a lot in the book of Kings this year. That you see what you think is a person turning completely around. Because you, you find that the Lord um, has not changed what he's going to do, but put off maybe to the next generation. But it wasn't confession of sin. There has been an outward, as we find it in the Corinthians passage, um, there, it, was a, it was a sorrowing, but not a godly sorrowing. And so to, to, to fully experience the joy of restoration, there is to be more than humility. It's a confession of sin and it, an act of asking for pardon. There has to be that. It's not just, well, I'm a child of, of the king. And um, um, the old statement, once saved, always saved. Um, and, and it's not that. There has to be this experiential coming out of, of chastisement. And the framers have a, 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 a word. It says, renew their faith. And what they mean by that is a consistent walk of faith. So it's, it's like going back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 again. It's seeing the race. Yes, there's the race. I, I know what's got to be done now. We've had the... the uh, was it? The kakuma taken away from the eyes and, and, and the spiritual eyes see now. There's a race there. There's another path, but this is the race. This is where it is. We're not going out of the way. That's where we've just come from. And we've come through humility, confession, pardon, uh, seeking pardon, and the consistent walk of life of faith again. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That's where it must go. That's where it must go. We should never take anything as a child of God for granted. We must never say, well... Because of all these things that happened to me in the past, the blessings, the joys, the experiences, then that must continue. We have no right even to expect that. We don't have any cause to deserve it. Again, we, we can go back to that whole Psalm, Psalm 51, but let me just bring out the first verse of the passage. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Now there is a man who has humbled himself. A man who has confessed his sins. A man who is asking his father for pardon. And a one that is seeking to walk in the way he knows he must walk as a believer. In the same vein was David, we have Peter, Matthew 26, 75. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. So even in the light and the very recent experience of denying the Lord, Peter was now convicted and convinced of his sin. Did he go out and weep? No, he wept bitterly. I can only imagine unconsolably. And we can only imagine what he went through because I don't believe that any of us have denied the Lord in the same way or in the same manner or with the same intensity that Peter did so we cannot 
fully enter into the experience of Peter and his humility before the Lord. Two short things before we finish in the conclusion. During the chastisement, however long it may be, and as I've mentioned to you, I believe that the Lord keeps short accounts with his people. And that's what Spurgeon said. We should keep short accounts with the Lord. We shouldn't go a long time without confessing and forsaking our sin. We should do that more regularly. Keep short accounts, he said. We know from verse 11 that no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. That is the, the experience through it. And it will be. Any child that has been chastised um, will not be happy at the time. And maybe for some time afterwards. But I found that if, it, if chastising has to be experienced, there is that love afterwards of my father loved me so much that he would do this. And in the passage we do have an illustration of human um, um, chastisement in verse 9. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh that corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather in subjection unto the father of spirits and live. And in verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Now, I tend to think that that is, has a positive and a negative there, because I think that sometimes as human parents we have chastised correctly and sometimes maybe incorrectly. And that's why it's done there. Um, and I remember, funnily enough, thinking about it today, a time when I was chastised. And I felt at that time that it was incorrect. Now, I may be wrong. My memories may be going after all those years. But I felt it was incorrect. Um, because firstly, it wasn't explained the reason why. Um, so it might have been just out of sheer anger. I possibly did deserve it. I, I, you know, child's memory is not the same. Um, but I say that to say this, that the chastisement of the Lord is controlled. Human chastisement is not always controlled, not always done logically, caringly, or lovingly. But the Lord's chastisement is controlled, and it's loving, and it's caring. As we've seen tonight, it's a mark of salvation, it's a mark of adoption, um, and it should be borne by those who are under discipline. That's difficult. And we should, as believers, as the bride of Christ, with Christ the bridegroom, speak, seek a speedy resolution of genuine repentance. Now let me just finish on a word of eschatology. I always like to give a little word here before we finish. The ultimate reason. What is the ultimate reason for chastisement for disobedient? It's to make us fit for heaven. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to in the end. It's to make us fit citizens of heaven. It's to make us to be those people who should be rightly there. 
The Lord, as I mentioned earlier, is concerned with our holiness more than anything else in all and every one of our earthly experiences. It is to prepare us for the life of eternal glory as the necessary temporal correction for eternal service. It is something that we should welcome as a, a divine requirement and fitness for heaven. Amen.